Hello, everyone. My name is Cody Weston, and today on the podcast Against Disease, Kavita talks with Dr. Khalil Ghanem about STDs and sexual health. Please be advised that in this episode, there is some graphic language used in the medical context. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is the podcast Against Disease brought to you by Humanity Against Disease. I'm Gavita Chapla. Unfortunately, Cody Weston cannot be here today, which is so sad. So I'm flying solo on this one. I am so happy to introduce you to my colleague, Dr. Khalil Ghanem. Dr. Ghanem, can you give us an introduction to who you are? Sure. I am an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins. And my area of expertise, specialty, I've spent the last 20 years studying sexually transmitted infections. And I teach a lot here at Hopkins, do some research, and I take care of patients. Amazing. Which is so perfect because today's topic is STDs and sexual health. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what you say will be very useful. I hope so. So Dr. Ghanem, first off, can you tell us what is an STD? Sure. It's very simple. It's essentially an infection that is transmitted through a sexual act. And remember that here, sexual act can mean a lot of different things. It can mm -hmm. mean not just, you know, penile vaginal or penile anal, but it could also mean oral sex, certainly either receptive or active oral sex mm -hmm. that can lead to transmission. And so the, the definition is broad and different STDs are transmitted in a different way, but usually there needs to be some level of a sexual contact that occurs. Got it. This is also um, referred to by a similar term, sexually transmitted infection, right? STI. So Correct. If anyone were to hear STI, it would be the same thing as an STD. Absolutely. So STI equals STD. The old, uh, you know, the old literature referred to these as venereal diseases, VD. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think the two most commonly used terms are STI and STD. Got it. Mm -hmm. In your knowledge of STDs, is there anything interesting about the history of how they were discovered or how some of them were treated or how they were addressed in communities before today? So I think a lot of the STDs have sort of a long and storied history. Mm -hmm. uh, no single STD more so than, for example, syphilis, right? Syphilis uh, really has a long history strongly associated with some of the most famous people in history that are uh, thought to have had syphilis. And in fact, many of them who have died from syphilis as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's always been some level of stigma associated with STDs. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably that's one of the main reasons why history whispers more about STDs than it talks about STDs uh, <laughs> outright. So there's a lot of whispering that happens with STDs. You know, honestly, I don't think that's changed much now. The stigma is still there. And I think we certainly don't talk a lot about these infections, mm -hmm. certainly not to the extent that if you were to look at the prevalence of these infections, how mm -hmm. frequently people get these infections, just think about, for example, genital herpes, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know for a fact that 
12% of the adult population in the United States is infected with type 2 genital herpes, and probably a significant number have type 1 genital herpes. So we're talking about maybe 20 to 25% of the adult population in wow. the United States that is infected with an infectious disease that almost nobody wants to talk about, and that's genital herpes. And so I think that, you know, with STDs, they're so stigmatized mm-hmm. that even talking about them, certainly in the past, but even now is still something of an anomaly rather than essentially a standard practice of talking like you would with any other infection. I mean, think about the measles outbreak that we have right now. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think twice about talking about a measles outbreak. Are we talking about the syphilis outbreak that we are facing right now in the same way? Is it being reported on in the same, in the same way? And I would argue that probably not. That's very true. I feel like even in clinic when I see my patients, sometimes our conversations are a little bit halting when we're talking about sexual history or, you know, they laugh when I say, do you have sex with men, women, or both? And it can become a huge thing that takes over their life if they have an STD and then they have to figure out how to have sexual relations with their partner and how to explain it to their partner. It, it can be a huge issue that affects them in many ways. Absolutely. And I think the sad part of it is that while I believe that patients are often more than willing to talk about their sexual behaviors with their physicians, Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to put the blame right now on physicians themselves who find themselves uncomfortable talking about this with their patients. And I think there have been several surveys that have asked patients, essentially, would you feel comfortable talking about your sexual behaviors, et cetera, with with your physician? And the vast majority said yes. It's sad that so often physicians themselves are uncomfortable talking about these topics with their patients. I have a hard time understanding that. Mm -hmm. particularly since as physicians, it is really our obligation to make sure that our patients lead a a healthy life. And I think that talking about sex and talking about ways to either prevent STDs, test Mm -hmm. for them and treat them is really the main way that sexual health can be maintained. It's a real missed opportunity whenever a patient goes to see their physician and the physician avoids asking these questions. Yeah, that's true. I think we're all guilty of that. I can definitely think of times where, especially I notice with patients that come into the hospital, I will ask them minute questions about whether they've had a colonoscopy or what their diabetes is like, even if those are not reasons that they're coming to the hospital at all. But I will often not go too far into their sexual history or sometimes not ask about it at all if I don't think it's relevant. But it could always be relevant because a lot of STDs have effects far beyond you know, just affecting somebody's penis or vagina. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And I love the fact that you actually ask your patients when they come and see you in clinic questions that are related to their sexual behaviors. I also love the fact, I'm going to highlight this because I think it's really important. I love how you ask the, the question. The way a physician asks a question about sexual behaviors uh, makes a huge difference in mm-hmm. setting the stage for a patient to actually feel comfortable telling them about their behavior 
of years. I'll share with you some wisdom that I've acquired over the last 20 years of doing this. There are two rules that I keep in mind. The first one is I always tell myself that a patient does not want to lie to me. Patients do not want to lie to us, and patients will not lie to us. Uh, The second rule, that's the first rule. The second rule (laughs) is patients want to tell you what they think you want to hear. And as a consequence, if they think you want to hear something different, Mm -hmm. uh, they will lie to you. And so I think that it's really important for us to understand this concept of, it's referred to in the medical medical literature as social desirability bias, Mm -hmm. uh, which essentially means that patients want to tell you what they think you want to hear, something that is socially desirable. And so the way physicians ask a question is critical. Uh, You know, when you asked the question earlier, or you were telling me about the question you asked your Mm -hmm. patient earlier, you didn't ask her the question, do you have sex with women? Do -hmm. you have sex with men? You simply asked the question, do you have sex with women, men, or both? And I think by standardizing that question, Mm -hmm. you are essentially allowing the patient the opportunity to answer these questions in an honest way so that they wouldn't have to tell you what they think you want to hear. And I think that a critical component of being able to get a good sexual history is knowing how to ask a question that allows the patient the opportunity to tell you the truth rather than what they think you want to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So I think through this discussion, we're already discovering that for everyone out there listening, part of your sexual health does depend on your physician and it's a shared responsibility that you both have to keep each other accountable to keeping an open, honest environment where you can really address um, everything that's going on. Absolutely. And you know what? If your physician doesn't ask you about your sexual health, I would encourage you to volunteer that information. I think that if you do it once, that physician the next time will remember (laughs) and will be sure to ask you about uh, this really important facet of your life. So I really think that it shouldn't be the case, but I do think that giving the physician permission to do so can Mm -hmm. also be quite helpful. So that's something that I think all patients can do to essentially ensure that they are getting the care that they deserve. That's true. Good point. So Dr. Ghanem, you alluded to this a little bit, but I want you to give us a little bit more detail. What are the different ways that you can get an STD? So in general, the most efficient ways are usually penile vaginal intercourse or Mm -hmm. penile anal intercourse. Mm -hmm. Remember, most of these infections require an abrasion of some sort Mm -hmm. through the skin that would allow this this infection to actually penetrate the body, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so, in general, the most efficient ways of transmission tend to be penile anal, penile vaginal. However, most of these infections can also be transmitted oral sex, mm-hmm. uh, be it receptive oral sex or active oral sex. And I think that that is one way that often patients don't realize STDs can be transmitted. So if you put your mouth on your partner's penis, for example, mm-hmm. you are at risk for getting gonorrhea, mm-hmm. chlamydia, herpes, syphilis, 
and HPV, among other STDs. So you have to remember that the non-traditional sexual exposures Mm -hmm. can lead to a risk of acquiring a sexually transmitted infection. And this is probably the most important message that I'm going to convey to you today. So after this, if you want to (laughs) shut off the podcast, you just go ahead and do that. But for now, listen to this piece. And this is probably the most important bit of information. The majority of sexually transmitted infections do not cause symptoms. So I'm going to repeat that because I think it's so important. The majority of sexually transmitted infections do not cause symptoms in the person who is infected. And so if you are looking for signs or symptoms like, you know, a rash, a discharge, an ulcer, swelling of the lymph nodes, pain on urination, all of those things, if you're looking for those things, you are essentially not going to find them in the majority of patients who have a sexually transmitted infection. So just to give you some numbers here so that you know, Mm -hmm. herpes simplex virus, right? Genital herpes. 70% of people who are infected with genital herpes do not have any symptoms. And the majority of those will never have symptoms for the rest of their lives. The bad news is with genital herpes is when you're infected, there is no cure. The good news is that the majority of people who are infected with genital herpes do not have symptoms. 70% will not have symptoms. With chlamydia trachomatis, if you're infected, for example, a woman who's infected with chlamydia trachomatis in her cervix, 70% will not have any symptoms. Men and women who are infected with chlamydia trachomatis or gonorrhea Mm -hmm. in their throats or in their rectums, 90 plus percent will not have any symptoms. And so the majority of sexually transmitted infections do not cause any symptoms. However, the thing that you have to keep in mind is that with all of these infections, the lack of symptoms doesn't mean that you can't transmit the infection. Got it. And so even if you don't have symptoms, even if your partner doesn't have symptoms, they can still transmit the infection. That's why it's so important not to just think about symptoms. If if you see a rash in the genital tract, you certainly have to think about the possibility that this person could either have syphilis or herpes or some other STD. Mm -hmm. Now, there are non-STD causes of rashes in Mm -hmm. the genital tract, and that's possible. But certainly if you see something, the likelihood is, you know, is relatively high that they may have a sexually transmitted infection. But remember, if you don't see anything, Mm -hmm. they could still have an STD that they can transmit to you. So the lack of signs or symptoms meaning the lack of rash or any symptoms that the, the, mm-hmm. your partner may have, does not mean that they're STD-free. They could still have an STD. And that's, I think, one of the big reasons why we really haven't been able to eradicate these STDs, right? Mm-hmm. Because people are infected. They don't know that they're infected. They don't get tested. They transmit it to others, and the cycle continues. That's true. So kind of like measles, if we really were able to get on top of some of these infections, we'd be able to just relegate them to the koalas that carry chlamydia and the armadillos and no longer humans, right? That is absolutely true. Cool. And the sad thing now is that if you look at almost every STD now, Mm -hmm. and if you look at the data, every STD that I can think of right now, certainly gonorrhea, Mm -hmm. chlamydia, 
syphilis, there is a resurgence uh, mm. of all of these STDs in the population. And part of it is maybe because we're testing more, mm-hmm. but there is still a big part of it that's being driven by increasing rates for many different reasons, including not testing enough, not finding the those that are infected, mm-hmm. and not treating those who are infected. So I think it's really important. I mean, if the listeners take one, if there's one take-home message that they get mm-hmm. out of this podcast, it's to understand that the majority, the vast majority of sexually transmitted infections do not cause symptoms. That's a huge point. And that kind of brings me to my next question for you, which is why is it important to prevent and to treat and to screen for STDs? Um, what are the far-reaching effects on the entire community as a whole? What are the um, you know things dangerous things that could happen to a person who has an STD? Why do we care? Absolutely. So let me tell you the f- the main two reasons why we really care about STDs. The first one is very simple and very easy to understand. It's to ensure reproductive health of women. Remember that many of the STDs certainly gone gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, have been associated with poor reproductive health outcomes in women. While most STDs tend to infect the cervix, which is the lower genital tract, often these STDs can lead to or be a direct cause of invasion of the upper genital urinary tract in women. Here we're talking about the uterus, the fallopian tubes, Mm -hmm. and the inflammation that these STDs cause in the upper reproductive tract of women can essentially lead to a term in medicine that we call fibrosis. Mm -hmm. So inflammation leads to scarring, that's fibrosis, Mm -hmm. and that ultimately leads leads to infertility. And so one of the main reasons why we really, really care about sexually transmitted infections is because they can cause infertility and bad reproductive outcomes in women. In pregnant women, they can affect the unborn child, lead to spontaneous abortions. They can even affect an infant that's being born during the birth process and cause devastating consequences in the newborn that can lead to death or severe consequences as that baby is growing. The reproductive health of women is one of the biggest reasons why we care about STDs. The second biggest reason why we care about STDs is because STDs have been shown to increase the risk of HIV acquisition and transmission in people. Mm. And so if you have an STD and you have HIV as well, you're more likely, you have a higher chance of transmitting HIV uh, to others. And if you have an STD but don't have HIV, then you are at higher risk of getting HIV because all of these STDs tend to increase inflammation in the genital tract. Mm -hmm. And by increasing inflammation, some of those inflammatory Mm -hmm. cells are the cells that are readily infected by HIV. Mm -hmm. And so you're increasing the risk of HIV. Those are the two main reasons. Don't forget, too, that many of these STDs can have individual complications. So Mm -hmm. for example, if you take syphilis, right? So syphilis, you get infected with syphilis. And within a few hours to days, that organism, and this is even before you've developed any symptoms from syphilis, that organism has already spread into the central nervous system. And one of the feared complications of syphilis, untreated syphilis, 
is that it can lead to essentially infection of the central nervous system. So you can get meningitis, inflammation of the brain, the covering surrounding the brain. Mm -hmm. You can also have strokes from syphilis, etc. Those are essentially complications to the individual who is infected with that infectious disease. Mm -hmm. And so that's another reason why we want to find and treat these infections. So for reproductive health, particularly particularly in women, but also in men, for HIV transmission and acquisition, and for an individual's health, those are some of the main reasons why we want to essentially try to find individuals who are infected, treat them, and treat their partners for these infections. Super serious stuff. Yeah, it really is. But at the same time, the good news is that most of these STDs are curable completely curable. And the good news is too, that even the non-curable ones like herpes, Mm -hmm. we have medications to essentially improve the symptoms. We have medications to decrease the risk of transmission to others. And the even better news from, from herpes is that over time, even patients who have symptoms, so patients who are infected with herpes who have symptoms, remember it's only 30% of those, Mm -hmm. over time, even when you don't use medications, those symptoms will tend to get better. And so that's the really good news. So the good news in general outweighs the bad news. And I think that by finding those STDs, Mm -hmm. we can treat them and we can preserve reproductive health. We can preserve a person's ability to really enjoy sex Mm -hmm. and not Uh, you know, fear the consequences Mm -hmm. of that. You know, STDs stigmatize sex, essentially. And, you know, sex is such an important part of who we are as uh, human beings. And sexual health is so important that it's so critical to essentially ensure that we can promote healthy sexual life to our patients. That's awesome. And that leads me to my next question. How do we cure STDs? How do we treat them usually? Most STDs are readily curable. Mm -hmm. So for example, with syphilis, depending on the stage of syphilis, you can give plain old penicillin and you can essentially cure the infection. With gonorrhea, it is a combination of two drugs that we can use. Both drugs can be given as single doses and you essentially can cure the infection. Chlamydia, so there are different antibiotics that can be used that will cure the infection. The ones that you can't cure Mm -hmm. are essentially herpes simplex, like we said. And the other one that you can't cure is human papillomavirus, HPV. The good news is that with HPV, Mm -hmm. most patients are completely asymptomatic. We do pap smears to make sure that uh, there is no progression to cancer in women. A vast majority of both men and women who get infected with HPV, their immune system will be able to control the infection and they should live, you know, long, healthy lives (laughs) free of any sequelae of HPV. (laughs) HSV, herpes simplex virus, Mm -hmm. we have some antivirals that we can use to decrease the frequency and severity of symptoms in those individuals who are symptomatic. And now you're going to look at me and say, but that's only 30% of the individuals because 70% will not have symptoms. That's exactly right. (laughs) And so we are targeting those patients who are symptomatic. Mm -hmm. Now, if you happen to have, for example, a couple that comes to you and they say, you know what? One member of the couple has herpes simplex, Mm -hmm. the other doesn't, and they say, how can we prevent the transmission uh, to the person who's not infected? Certainly condoms can be used, but you have to keep in mind that condoms 
in the setting of herpes simplex virus infection are not 100% effective. Mm -hmm. And so you can certainly use condoms. They will decrease the risk of transmission. But we could also use antiviral medications in the infected person to supplement condoms in trying to reduce the risk of transmission. So here's another take-home point. Mm -hmm. Male condoms are highly effective at preventing the transmission of many STDs, Mm -hmm. including HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and they are effective at decreasing the risk of transmission for herpes simplex and HPV, but really they don't eliminate it. You're decreasing the risk, but it's not completely eliminated. And so people have to just be aware of that when they're deciding to engage in sex. So that brings me to my next point. If somebody is looking to be sexually active, what are the things that they can do to best maintain their sexual health and prevent themselves from getting STDs? And do you have any thoughts on how they should communicate with their sexual partner about their STD status or, you know, how often they should get checked for STDs? You use the term that's the most important term here, and that is communication. Mm -hmm. Uh, Having a frank discussion about essentially STDs is critical. Now, often what happens is I see, you know, patients who come to see me and they say, Mm -hmm. but I asked my partner if they ever had an STD and they guaranteed that they didn't have an (laughs) STD. They never had. But remember, you know, partners aren't lying to you necessarily. But remember that 70% don't cause symptoms. If you're asking about, hey, did you ever have an STD? Well, if I didn't have symptoms, then I don't know that I had an STD. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I have an STD potentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's very difficult. And that's why I think the more important question to ask your partners is essentially to say, hey, have you been? Have you ever been tested for an STD? Mm-hmm. When was the last time you got tested? I got tested, you know, a month ago, and I was tested for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and I was negative for these, and mm-hmm. I know my HIV status, and I'm negative because I got tested, you know, at the same time. Mm-hmm. So asking about symptoms and asking your partner whether they've had an STD, uh, a positive response, you know, may be useful, mm-hmm. but a negative response is probably not very useful. Mm-hmm. And so what you want to try to do is really ask the right question so you can get the answer. To answer your second question that you said, how often should people get screened? That really depends on the individual, depending on which, you know, which population you belong to and what behaviors you engage in. Mm -hmm. Those are different risk factors that would warrant either, you know, more frequent or less frequent uh, Mm -hmm. testing. And this actually brings up a really good point. I'm going to take an aside here because I think this is actually very... (laughs) Very important. You know, we as physicians are often sort of trained to assess for risk, right? Mm -hmm. What is the person's risk? Are they quote unquote high risk or are they low risk? That can be challenging. Let me tell Uh you why. Let's say you actually are a person that has sex Mm -hmm. uh, and you have sex with people within a sexual network of yours. So we Mm -hmm. all belong to different sexual networks, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you have sex within your sexual network, let's say you could have a thousand sex partners in the last year Mm -hmm. and and had sex five times a day in the Mm -hmm. last year. If, if, the prevalence of gonorrhea or chlamydia or syphilis, if the prevalence of STDs mm-hmm. 
is very low in that sexual network. You could have a thousand partners and have sex every day and still not get a single STD mm. because it's just that network doesn't have STDs in it. On the other hand, you could be part of a sexual network mm -hmm. that has a very high prevalence of STDs. And you could only have one sex partner, right? Mm -hmm. And have sex once, mm -hmm. but you get an STD. Mm. So let me ask you a question. Who's higher risk? Okay. The person who has a thousand sex partners or the person who has one sex partner? Wow. Well, I guess it depends on their sexual network. That's right. So the risk, when we're thinking about risk yeah. with sexually transmitted infections, it's not just the individual behavior, the individual's mm -hmm. risk, but it really is the risk of the network mm -hmm. uh, in which that individual belongs. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important also for a physician mm -hmm. to not just ask about, you know, how many sex partners you have, but to get a sense of what mm -hmm. that network is like. And that can be challenging because most of the studies that have been done and most of the data that we have mm -hmm deal with the individual risk rather than the risk of the network. It's harder to find data on the network. And so that's something to keep in mind as well. Mm -hmm. So one network that tends to have a high prevalence mm -hmm. of STDs is the MSM network. So mm -hmm. for example, men who have sex with men mm -hmm. tend to, even if they don't have high-risk behaviors, mm -hmm. they could have one sex partner and not engage in high-risk individual behaviors. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they belong to a network mm -hmm. that essentially has a higher prevalence of STDs puts them at a higher risk than somebody else who doesn't belong to that network. So it's important to distinguish between individual risk and network risks. And I think depending on all of those factors, you have to come up with individual approach to screening, meaning to testing a patient for STDs. Usually, my approach is if there is a patient who is having sex, uh, who is sexually active, usually my approach is to screen them for STDs at least once a year. I think that's a reasonable approach, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis. And in some of my patients who actually have higher risk mm -hmm. behaviors, individual behaviors, or they belong to a high risk network, I tend to screen them as often as frequently as every three months. Got it. So it really depends on the individual and the network in which they belong. And that really helps me think about how frequently to screen them. That's really good to know. I have a couple of questions to follow up sure. on that. First question is, what are the individual risk factors? If I'm a person who's sexually active, what are things that I should think about um, with my sexual behaviors that might put me at more risk? Sure. So some of the things that you should think about, and this is not exhaustive, I know I'm going to forget a few mm -hmm. of those risks. And so don't send me nasty emails. I promise. <laughs> I, I, you know, I will. I'm just warning you, I'm going to forget. Some. Certainly when you're not using condoms or the inconsistent use of condoms, mm -hmm. that's a big risk factor. A huge risk factor that people don't often think about mm -hmm. is alcohol use. So having mm -hmm. sex in the setting of alcohol use really significantly increases your risk for acquiring an STD. Also, uh, with the use of other substances, certain drugs like meth, cocaine, etc., have been shown to increase the risk of STDs, mainly because I think it results often in disinhibition. Mm -hmm. You're less likely to use condoms in that mm -hmm. setting, etc. Risks include not just your own risks, but 
the behaviors of your partners. Mm. So, you know, you're not only sleeping with your partners in a way, you're also <laughs> sleeping with all of their partners. And so you may be very mindful of mm. the risks that you take. But remember, every time that you have sex with a partner, you are inheriting in a way the risks that they're taking outside of your own relationship with that partner. So I think that's important. Other risk factors, young age, we're talking about less than 24, is a risk factor for acquiring STDs. Partly it's behavioral, but there is also a biological risk, particularly, for example, young women. Mm -hmm. They have a a different kind of cell structure Mm -hmm. uh, in their cervix, which essentially puts them at higher risk if they're exposed to an STD. So there are biological uh, risk factors associated uh, with that. Certainly having more than one sex partner Mm -hmm. uh, is a risk factor for infections. Those are the main Mm -hmm. risk factors that I can think of offhand Mm -hmm. for individuals and the risk of acquiring STDs, yeah. Excellent. My next question is, as a way to improve the health of humans as a whole and improve health from the public health perspective, is there a lot of focus now on treating the sexual health of those sexual networks that have higher rates of STDs than others? That's really been a goal is to try and infiltrate the sexual network and try to provide an approach to maintaining the health of the network as a way to uh, essentially ensure the health of the individuals within that network. Mm -hmm. You know, we've known, we've thought about networks for a good long time. Mm -hmm. Um, We have, it has been much more challenging uh, to do research uh, within these networks. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you why. Think about it. When a patient comes in, right, uh, to see you and you diagnose them with syphilis, let's Mm -hmm. say, what we need to do and the goal of trying to ensure the safety of that patient, the health of that patient and the public health in general Mm -hmm. is to essentially ask the patient, hey, tell me about who your sex partners have been in the last two months, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason why is because then you can go to these partners, i.e. that portion of the sexual network, Mm -hmm. and essentially treat them uh, so that they don't either infect others or reinfect that patient. So not only do you want to treat the patient, but you also want to try to find their partners and treat their partners uh, so that they don't infect their other partners or Mm -hmm. reinfect the patient. That's an important concept here to remember. If I am treating a patient today with Mm -hmm. an STD, any STD, they come in today, I treat them. There is a 30% probability that in the next three to six months, they are going to be reinfected with that same STD. And the reason why that is, is Mm -hmm. most often, one, because their partners weren't treated and they have sex again with their untreated partner and they get reinfected. Mm -hmm. Uh, And two, because they happen to be or they happen to have sex with partners in a network where the prevalence of that STD is higher. Mm. And so for those two reasons, uh, we see this all the time, 30% of people that I treat today with an STD, they're going to come back in the next three to six months with that STD. And that's the reason why it's so important when you get treated for an STD that you come back three months later and get screened Mm -hmm. for STDs to make sure that you are not reinfected. And so within a network, as we were saying before, essentially trying to find 
the sex partners is the first step in trying to identify that network and to to infiltrate the network and to essentially mm-hmm. provide treatment in that network. However, when you think about now how people are meeting each other, where yeah. are they most often meeting? Uh, through like dating apps or That's virtual exactly networks. Right. Through virtual networks, through dating apps, uh, and essentially it has become clear that finding the partners in this era uh-huh. of uh, <laughs> geosocial networking has become exceedingly difficult. Mm. Because in the past, you used to come in, you used to be diagnosed with an STD, uh-huh. and then the people that go out and find your partners are referred to as the disease intervention specialists. They are the heroes of <laughs> our story today because they essentially are great at interviewing, at getting the names of partners and anonymously finding those partners and getting them treated. Mm -hmm. And in the past, you used to say, well, I don't know the name of this uh, this guy that I met, but he went to this bar and that's where I met him and this is what he looked like. And so these DIS officers would go to that bar and wait for somebody that looked (laughs) like that person or ask and say, hey, you know this person? And the bartender would always know the name of that person and say, oh yeah, that's Ron. And he comes in on Saturday nights. And so we would find Ron and we would bring Ron in and we would treat Ron and that would be the end of it. Got it. Unfortunately now it's no longer venue based mm-hmm. but it really is sort of the virtual venue if you will. Yeah. Finding these partners uh, online it becomes very difficult for the disease intervention specialist yeah. to track down those partners and to treat them. And so the approach that we had to, if you will, infiltrate the network yeah. to try and treat as many people within that network as possible has become much more challenging. Wow. Uh, and so uh, that is one of the many reasons why mm-hmm. I think uh, rates of STDs are increasing because we're having a harder time identifying the partners and treating those partners. Got it. Are there inequalities with these sexual networks? Like, are there certain socioeconomic groups or are there certain racial groups that, um, or um, sexual, you know, sexual orientation groups that are at a disadvantage because of either historically um, they haven't had the resources or there's been stigma or bias or anything of that sort? I think for all of those reasons that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, a, a group that has been highly disadvantaged is our essentially African-Americans. Mm-hmm. African-Americans have much higher rates of many of the STDs, and it has a lot to do with access to care, being able to be screened, treated effectively, etc. The other big risk group is MSM, men who have sex mm-hmm. with men, gay men, bisexual men. Mm-hmm. Um, and those That group has also is at... A disadvantage, partly because of a stigma associated with trying to find care and appropriate care, mm-hmm. and partly because that network has a very high prevalence mm-hmm. of STDs within it. And then another group of individuals that have also been disadvantaged are commercial sex workers, where again, mm-hmm. because of the legality of that, uh, it has led to a significantly less likelihood of being screened, Mm -hmm. diagnosed, and treated. If you look now, for example, at our uh, rates of STDs in general, Mm For example, syphilis, Mm -hmm. there are now two big outbreaks in the United States. Mm -hmm. There's one big outbreak that's been ongoing for the last 14 years that's occurring in men who have sex with men and gay men. Uh, And there is now a more recent outbreak that's Uh occurring among 
women and men who have sex with women in networks that are linked to drug use. So mm-hmm. cocaine, methamphetamines, IV drug use. In Baltimore, for example, we have a different outbreak too mm-hmm. that's linked to commercial sex work among women. So mm-hmm. in women, commercial sex work is another is another one. So I think that there are populations that are disadvantaged in in their susceptibility and in their access to, uh, mm-hmm. to care uh, for these infections. So it sounds like nuances for homosexual men and women. We've talked a lot about men who have sex with men, that anal intercourse can be often a way that causes more of that abrasion um, and makes it easier to transmit a STD and how they also have higher rates of STDs in their network. And they're also, um, you know, maybe that stigma component as well of providers aren't trained, well-trained to address sexual health in homosexual men and women. What about women who have sex with women? Yeah. What are the nuances there? What are the risks that they have? Do they have more or less risk than, um, than heterosexual men and women? So that's a great, that's a really great question. I think that the first point that you made, I think I want to highlight. Yeah. We talked about um, men who have sex with men, for example, mm-hmm. gay men. Just to give you a sense... of gonorrhea infections Mm -hmm. uh, in gay men don't occur in the genital tract. Mm -hmm. They occur either in the throat or in the rectum. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that many, many gay men who actually seek care are often not tested at uh, these extra genital sites. Mm -hmm. They're not being tested at the throat. They're Mm -hmm. not being tested at the rectum. And the vast majority of these infections are being missed Mm -hmm. uh, in these these men. So I think that one of the things you have to keep in mind is that you need to make sure that if you happen to be a gay man, you are getting the best care possible. Uh, What that means is that you want to make sure your clinician, whoever that is, Mm -hmm. is well-versed in essential essentially the best approaches that uh, provide the most optimal care. And Mm -hmm. I have to say that that's not always the case out there. Mm -hmm. And so that's one very important concept to keep in mind. When you look at women who have sex with women, they are first a population that has been far less studied Mm. than other populations. And what we know from some of the studies that have been done is that their risk is not zero. While their risks tend to be lower Mm -hmm. Uh, For many of these sexually transmitted infections, they are not zero. And as such, it is important that that women in that population are still screened Mm -hmm. uh, and are still counseled in an appropriate manner. Again, their risks are not zero. They have lower risks often than women who have sex with men, Mm -hmm. uh, but often it is a a population that a lot of physicians don't think about their risks in that setting. Mm -hmm. You know, they say, ah, you know, this is low risk, so we're not going to screen. And you may very well be missing uh, important infections in this population. Got it. What about for women who are pregnant or who are thinking about being pregnant? Are there things they need to think about in terms of having sex before getting pregnant, having sex after getting pregnant? Uh, What they are usually tested for by their OBGYN and what can happen with their baby? Sure. So the good news is that there are recommendations uh, for all women who are pregnant at the first prenatal visit 
to uh, go ahead and test mm-hmm. uh, for some of the most common sexually transmitted infections. So there, uh, in fact, in the United States, I think in Every state, there is there are laws that essentially uh, make it such that all women who come in for their first prenatal visit mm-hmm. need to be tested for syphilis. There are recommendations to also test for gonorrhea and chlamydia, some of the most common sexually transmitted infections. That's critical because most of these STDs have been linked with poor pregnancy outcomes mm-hmm. uh, and complications in the unborn child and the newborn uh, the newborn child. Remember, I mean, it's yeah. the same, you know, behavior, it's the same exposure, if you will, Mm -hmm. that led to pregnancy that can lead to STDs. And so it is important to make sure that pregnant women are screened and treated immediately for any of these STDs. Now, Mm -hmm. it is also important to assess the risk of that patient uh, throughout pregnancy because mm-hmm. uh, what happens is it's possible that at the first prenatal visit, uh, that woman has no STD, but if she's engaging in any kind of exposures during the pregnancy, she could become infected mm-hmm. uh, during the pregnancy. And the consequences of that could be devastating both uh, to the to the woman and certainly to the unborn child. So it's important to ask all pregnant women questions about their behaviors and their exposures consistently throughout pregnancy. One thing to keep in mind is that particularly for herpes simplex, Mm -hmm. if you happen to have a pregnant woman Mm -hmm. who has not been exposed to herpes and her partner who has herpes simplex, documented herpes simplex, Mm -hmm. then usually what happens is in the third trimester of pregnancy, it is recommended that they not have sex during Mm -hmm. the third trimester because if this woman who's never been exposed to herpes Mm -hmm. gets exposed to herpes in the third trimester, the risk to the fetus and the newborn is excessively high. Mm -hmm. And so it's only in the setting of uh, herpes simplex infection Mm -hmm. in the third trimester if if the female partner, the pregnant woman, mm-hmm. is has never been exposed and her partner is infected, we ask them not to have sex. Otherwise, mm-hmm. um, really, it's uh, a matter of you know worst case scenario, use a condom. Otherwise, that's it's usually not an issue as long as screening is being performed. What is the deal with HPV and cervical cancer? So HPV causes cervical cancer. Okay. It's also a cause of, you know, vaginal cancer, vulvar cancer. It's a cause of anal cancer. And it's a cause of upper airway some of the upper airway Mm -hmm. cancers. And so HPV now, I think if you ask any epidemiologist, even Mm -hmm. the most stringent epidemiologist, (laughs) and they usually say it's associated, it's linked, et cetera, everybody would say HPV causes these cancers or a subset of these cancers. Certainly cervical cancer, it causes all of the cervical cancers that we know for... And so uh, HPV, remember, they also can cause genital warts too Uh that are not cancerous, but that can be problematic when you're dealing with those uh, with with those as a patient. Uh, the great news, the incredible news is that, <laughs> you know, we have a vaccine that is very effective at preventing HPV infection. And right now there is a vaccine very safe. Uh, the vaccine does not comp- 
contain a live virus. It only contains a portion of the virus, no DNA from that virus, so it cannot be infectious. I can't tell you the number of times I've had patients come in and say, oh, I don't want the vaccine because I could get infected from the vaccine. <laughs> you cannot get infected from this vaccine. Impossible. And this latest vaccine, you know, there are about 30 different HPV types that can cause uh, essentially genital infections. Mm-hmm. Not all cause cancer, but many of them do. The good news is now we have a vaccine that contains nine of these types that are Mm -hmm. some of the more common causes of cancer. And this vaccine is essentially near 100% effective at preventing uh, infection with those nine types that are found. Yeah, it's a great vaccine. Great vaccine. It is recommended for boys and girls at Mm -hmm. the age of 11. The goal is to try and get vaccinated before you get exposed to that HPV type. Got it. Because if you get exposed to the type before you get vaccinated, the vaccine will no longer protect you from that particular type. Mm. So for example, if you, Kavita, were exposed to type 16, right, uh, before you get the vaccine, and then you get the vaccine, the vaccine will work at protecting you from the other eight types that you weren't exposed to before. But type 16 that's found in the vaccine, the vaccine will not protect you from getting it because you already have it. And it won't protect you from getting disease from that specific type. And that's why the recommendation is to try and give this vaccine before somebody becomes sexually Mm -hmm. active because that's how you will derive the maximal benefit from this vaccine. Having said that, though, even if you're sexually active, Mm -hmm. uh, the vast majority of people who are sexually active will derive some and most Mm -hmm. benefit from this vaccine vaccine or a significant amount of benefit from this vaccine. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to vaccinate uh, men and women to the age of 26 uh, Uh with this vaccine. And recently the FDA approved this vaccine for women up to the age of 45. Uh uh, But between the ages of 26 and 45, the body that recommends vaccine hasn't Mm -hmm. yet made a recommendation. And so if you happen to be a woman between the ages of 26 and 45, you certainly can get the vaccine. It's Mm -hmm. safe. It's effective, but it may be that your insurance company may not pay for it just yet. So, but if you're younger than 26, mm-hmm. uh, either man or woman, your insurance company will cover it. It's uh, a spectacular vaccine and it's a preventative vaccine against HPV, which can cause genital warts and cancer. Not all of the types, mm-hmm. but the most common types. And remember, if you're a woman mm-hmm. and you got this vaccine, you still need pap smears. You still need to get your pap smear. Mm -hmm. Because remember, that vaccine doesn't cover all the different types. It only covers some of the most common ones. Mm -hmm. The other scenario I wanted to talk about was if you have HIV or your partner has HIV and you want to continue to have sex with them, um, what are the things to think about? And can you talk more about what PrEP is? Sure. So you have to remember that there are ways to protect yourself from getting HIV. Some of the common things that we have are these biomedical interventions that are highly effective. Uh, And let me just give you some examples. The one that you mentioned is PrEP, and that's called pre-exposure prophylaxis. So if you happen to 
to be somebody who has multiple sex partners, certainly if you're uh, also an injection drug user. So by taking uh, this combination pill, consists of two antiretroviral medications, meaning anti-HIV medications. Mm -hmm. By taking this pill every day, you can decrease your risk of getting HIV, Mm -hmm. uh, even if you're not using condoms. Now, of course, you want to try and use condoms, etc. But even if you're not using condoms, if you're taking this medicine consistently every day, then you can uh, decrease significantly your risk of acquiring HIV. In most studies, patients who were adherent uh, to this regimen decreased over 90% their risks of acquiring HIV. Uh, If you're not adherent, then uh, certainly how well they work goes down significantly. Mm -hmm. So you want to be adherent uh, with these medications. That's called PrEP pre-exposure prophylaxis to protect you from getting HIV. Now, if you happen to have had a high-risk exposure, Mm -hmm. right? So you have sex, you weren't on PrEP, you didn't use a condom, and uh, you find out that your partner was HIV-infected, you can get something called post-exposure prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. And post-exposure prophylaxis is uh, a combination usually of three different antiretroviral medications mm-hmm. uh, that are given ideally uh, within the first few hours after the exposure, but you can still give them uh, within the first few days after the exposure. But their their benefit is highest when you've had the exposure and you've, you're given this medication within the first few hours after the exposure. So if you happen to have unprotected sex mm-hmm. and and you realize that you were exposed, probably the best thing to do is to head to an emergency room. Or if you have access to a primary care provider immediately, Mm -hmm. you can call them and say, I've had that exposure. They would recommend a three-drug regimen of antiretroviral therapy, anti-HIV medications, Mm -hmm. uh, and you would take those for about a month uh, after that exposure. Uh, Remember, again, the most important thing is trying to get those medications as soon as possible after that exposure. So that's called post-exposure prophylaxis. So we've talked about PrEP, and uh, PEP in terms of trying to decrease that. The other thing that can happen that's Mm -hmm. very effective too is if you happen to be HIV infected, Mm -hmm. to decrease the risk of transmission to your partners of HIV, you can take antiretroviral medications. And if you these medications cause your virus to be undetectable, which is Mm -hmm. a good thing, it suppresses the virus, then your risk of transmitting the virus to others is essentially non-existent. And that's, I'm sure many of you have heard U equals U, uh, undetectable equals untransmissible, which means that the person who is HIV infected Mm -hmm. takes their medications, they take their medications consistently so that they have completely suppressed the virus, uh, the replication of the virus. And so if their HIV viral load is undetectable, their likelihood of transmitting the virus to others is essentially nil. That is very inspiring um, for you know anyone who's out there with HIV to think that you can get to a point where you'll be at low risk of transmitting HIV to your partner and it'll improve your health and you'll continue to have a, a healthy, happy sex life. Absolutely. And so all of these are interventions that can help people stay healthy uh, and HIV free and certainly can help uh, HIV infected patients maintain and have a, a happy and healthy sex life. That's awesome. To conclude, Dr. Ghanem, since you're a very methodical, list-driven person, 
Can you give us a summary of your main takeaway points that we've talked about um, during this podcast hour? Absolutely. So really, the goal is not to stigmatize anybody when we talk about STDs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really, the goal of trying to identify, screen for, and treat STDs is to promote, uh, you know, sexual health, sexual health among everyone. Mm -hmm. And that really is a right. And it's not, you know, it, it really is a right. Sexual health is a right. And STDs... STDs should not be used to stigmatize, uh, you know, a healthy, happy sex life in Mm -hmm. any way. So that's the first thing that uh, I'd like to mention. The second thing that I'd like to mention now that we're talking about STDs, and that's really important. Again, I'm going to highlight that, that the majority of these infections don't cause symptoms. So uh, please keep that in mind. Go get tested if you've been, you know, exposed. Um, And the other nice thing about these STDs is that the majority of these infections are curable and easily curable. So if you've been exposed, get tested. If you're positive, you can be cured. So that's the second thing to keep in mind. The third thing that I think is uh, really important is to talk to your physicians and talk to your partners. Communication is critical. And being able to overcome the hesitancy when talking about sex is critical to ensure a, a healthy sex life. And so if you your physician doesn't ask you about these things, you should volunteer that information. Perhaps you'll make them feel a little bad, but that's okay. I give you full permission to make them feel guilty that they they weren't the ones to initiate that conversation. But I think by giving your physician permission and saying, you know what, let me tell you, you didn't ask me about this, but I just want to tell you that I have a new sex partner and, you know, and giving them a little bit of information, then that physician is going to, and that I'm, I'm using physician here as perhaps a poor Mm -hmm. term, that clinician, Mm -hmm. uh, it could be a nurse practitioner, it could be a PA, that clinician will essentially have a better idea about what to do to maintain your health and to ensure your health. So I think that's really important. Also talk to your partners. You know what? We talk to our partner. We we talk about a whole bunch of different (laughs) things and there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I've been tested or you know what? I haven't been tested Mm -hmm. in the last, you know, six months. And And what I'd like to do is get tested. Maybe you want to get tested too. So we can make sure that, you know, we're healthy before we embark on this relationship. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. And asking about symptoms or thinking that you're going to see those, those, you know, Mm -hmm. STDs when you're about to have sex... It's just not the way to do it. You are going to, you know, you're not going to see those STDs because they're just not not visible uh, and the signs and symptoms are not there. And so you want to be smart. You want to be open to communication. And um, and I think that's those are the most important aspects. Also, remember that there are uh, there are tools to prevent Condoms are effective, very effective, in fact, for most STDs. That's great. Monogamy is great, too. But keep in mind that there are ways to protect yourself from HIV, PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis, and U equals U. We talked about all of those things. Those are great ways to uh, protect yourself. And remember, if you've been 
treated for an STD today, in three months, you want to go back to your clinician and ask them to screen you for these STDs again because you are at risk for getting reinfected. So if you follow those basic those basic rules, <laughs> you are going to have a very, very healthy sex life. That way you will maintain your own health, but mm-hmm. also the health of your network. Uh, and that's really important. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Ghanem, for coming on today. My pleasure. (laughs) Now, Dr. Ghanem, we're just going to go through two questions. So the first question for you is, what is the source of your passion as a physician scientist? And what advice would you give to anyone who is interested in that field? So I think the source of my passion is teaching. It is really mentoring and teaching the next generation of physician scientists. I love the science. I love asking questions, but I find myself in my old age that (laughs) I love sharing. I love teaching and mentoring the next generation uh, as much, if not more so, than the actual asking of the questions myself. So to me, I think I've become somebody who who loves the science, but I love more the ability to to mentor and teach the next generation uh, of of uh, young investigators. So awesome! And the last question we have for you is: through your life experiences so far, what have you learned about happiness? How to be happy? How to stay happy? I think the most important lesson that I've learned is know yourself. I don't think you can be happy unless you know yourself and you know what drives you and what uh, you value. I think that sounds trite to a certain extent, know yourself, but it's really hard. I've realized in my life that I, I'm still getting to know what I like <laughs> and who I am and you know what my values are. I mean, you can ask me a question and I can list the values that I have, but I also find that often I'm surprised by what I thought I didn't like turns out I actually like it a lot or what I thought I liked and perhaps I don't like it as much. And so I think the secret is really knowing yourself and knowing, really knowing what drives you because then you can make an informed decision about things in your life and that can allow you or at least provide the opportunity to be happy. I mean, if you know what you like, then you can make decisions that would allow you to do the things that you like and perhaps be happy. So I think that would be the first thing that I would uh, I would suggest. And then the next thing is luck. You have to be lucky. <laughs> I mean, there is something called luck, uh, and being open to luck, I think, is a uh, is an important factor. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to like us on Facebook and check out our other episodes available on your podcast platform. Tune in next time when we talk to Cecil Tenga Tenga about equity in healthcare.